all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any type of health issue that you might need an answer to. We're going to try to do the best we can to answer that or point you in the right direction. If you'd like to reach us today with your questions or comments, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. If you're not able to call, you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org, and you can also go to mpbonline.org to listen to past programs. Uh, just search for Southern Remedy on our website, and you can see uh, in the archive. Maybe you missed a couple of uh, of uh, maybe the latter, uh, the first part of a program, and just. Uh, came in on the latter part of a discussion, you can always go back and listen to those uh, on mpbonline.org. Hope everybody is having a great week this week uh, on this uh, sunny but chilly Wednesday morning. Uh, It's nice to see the sun out, though. It's always a little bit more tolerable for me, who is averse to cooler climates, if the sun is out. If it's not, then it's just a a bleak, miserable day. But um, Hope you're getting out at least a little bit to enjoy that weather. You know, it's going to be a challenge as we move into this time in the South uh, to uh, to get outside as much. And certainly that's going to impact our exposure to one another uh, indoors. One of the reasons why we have uh, normally on a non-COVID or pre-COVID uh, season, while we have so many things that uh, we're affected by, all the viruses are out there that cause the common cold, certainly the flu uh, the reason why they're one of the reasons why they're more prevalent during this time of the year is because we're around each other more. We're inside more uh, and certainly can uh, be more susceptible to that. A lot of times we'll get less uh, physical activity, less exercise. And certainly that's important for keeping the body's immune system healthy. Uh, so I would encourage you to do that. Uh, although it is cold, and I just mentioned that I'm sort of averse to those kinds of things, being a native Mississippian, uh, it's not Chicago cold. My sister lives in Chicago, and I'll tell you, it is totally, that's a different kind of cold there. Uh, we can talk about our humidity cold and all those kinds of things, but it is frigid. Also been in Alaska, that is taking it to a whole different level. Um, so uh, I'd encourage you to do that as much as possible. If you are inside, um, I know a lot of counties now, uh, the majority of our counties in Mississippi have a mass mandate, a lot of uh, different uh, opinions and emotions about that. Uh, All I will say on that is it's proven that if you wear a mask, particularly around other people who are wearing masks, you can decrease your chances of getting things, not just COVID, but other things too, including flu. 
um, throughout this season. So I'd encourage you to do that. Even if your county does not have a mask mandate, it's an easy thing that you can do for wearing a mask. Uh, I do it just about all day long uh, unless I'm by myself in my office. So it's something that I've had to adjust to as well. We certainly have surgeons who do this every day at work. So it's not detrimental to your health. You're not going to die of it. Uh, found a, t- a funny uh, uh, Twitter uh, video about this, which was sort of a, a pseudo documentary of a surgeon who just died because he had his mask on all the time. So it was a farce about that. So uh, you're not going to be affected by that. There's certainly people who wear it at their job all day long and uh, do just fine. As I said, if you're a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, certainly you you wear a mask a lot. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that. It's a simple thing you can do. We might have some uh, opportunity to talk just briefly about vaccinations during the hour. I've gotten a lot of questions in clinic about that. Got some questions yesterday about, uh, should I get it? When is it going to come? Uh, most of you've been following this, uh, probably in the news, you know, that there's a, a couple of dates coming up, uh, later, uh, in about a week and a half. Uh, that are going to be some opportunities to uh, review this and to have an FDA decision on whether or not to move forward on uh, uh, on dispersion of those. And certainly a lot of questions about who might get those vaccinations first. What's the best way to do that? State by state, it may be a little bit different. So I, I have a little bit of information on that. But if you have a question, not just about COVID-related activities, but anything else, maybe it's a new symptom Uh, that started in your foot, or maybe a cough that won't go away, or maybe it's something else that's come up, uh, or a new medication that your physician or somebody else prescribed, and you want to ask some questions about that, call us right now at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464, or email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Also, I hope everybody had a chance to uh, Uh, have some time off and some uh, time for reflection about what you're grateful for. Um, I am grateful for my colleagues and my family. Um, You know, a lot of things that we can be grateful for during this time, but particularly I wanted to sort of talk about that on on my colleagues. I I know, you know, working at University of Mississippi Medical Center uh, and in, in one of the hats that I wear, I've had a lot of interactions with people, particularly on the front lines in the emergency department, in uh, the ICUs that have really been hitting, uh, hitting COVID and other things hard. You know, uh, all of our other things that we normally treat on an emergency basis uh, and inpatient basis has not really gone away. It's just been uh, it, where, where it's always been with COVID on top of that. And uh, they're doing a fantastic job. A lot of them are tired. A lot of them have gotten COVID for various reasons. Um, uh, you know, various exposures that they've had, but uh, they are doing a fantastic job. And if you know somebody like that, then even a note or something that you can put in the mail to them uh, or uh, call them up, text them, encourage them. If you know somebody that's a nurse or a physician uh, in those areas or a paramedic or a firefighter, you know, that they would love to hear. I know uh, a word of encouragement if you have it for them uh, today. So, just want to encourage you to do that. And again, it's important for our, all of our mental health during this time uh, for all year long to look for the things that we are grateful for. Don't uh, think that just because Thanksgiving has uh, passed us by as a holiday that we have to uh, to not uh, continue to do that. And it's going to be a hard time for a lot of people. The, the season between Thanksgiving and Christmas 
uh, is difficult uh, because of a lot of different reasons. Again, isolation can be one of those. Uh, depression and depression, depression type symptoms and anxiety uh, is certainly on an, a pre-COVID year higher during this time of year. Um, if you know somebody that is dealing with, uh, with that, reach out to them by phone. Uh, if you want to you know, Skype them or um, uh, connect with them in those ways, I know it would mean a lot to them. Uh, but we all need to look uh, we, we need to look after one another in these ways during this time. It's important to do that. And certainly it can give you a lot back by, by reaching out to people. So I'd encourage you to, to do that. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 I want to encourage people to call earlier in the hour. We usually have enough time to, uh, to get to a number of calls, somewhere between 7 and 10 an hour. But we usually have a lot more time uh, to spend on them in the first part of the hour. I know nobody likes to be that first caller, but I am giving you permission right now to do that. Uh, if you wait to the last part of the hour, we will try to get to you. But a lot of times we feel rushed at the end just because of our time limitations here to uh, to um, to go to that. All right. I think we have our first caller on the phone. And uh, Kevin, I didn't quite get that because of the background I think we have on our on our Skype right now. So you'll it's forgive me if I don't Boonville. have Barbara from Boonville. Good morning, Barbara. Thank you for calling. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Well, uh, I was told at the beginning of this COVID, uh, we're in our mid-70s, me and my husband, and uh, we have uh, some health issues, like I got blood pressure and uh, arterial fibrillation and rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, we was told that we was, you know, uh, real, at our age, we could catch this uh, COVID real easy. And uh, But I'm wondering, uh, did, could we hold our grandchildren or the babies or uh, be around them or go in the house with them or is it safe for us? Yeah, that, Barbara, that's a that's a great point. Um, so the, our higher risk individuals, what we know about people who have gotten COVID, you know, we've learned so much about this. And unfortunately, we had to learn it, you know, just from experience uh, early on. And uh, if you're older and if you have medical conditions, particularly some of the ones that you name, particularly hypertension, and then any kind of autoimmune process that affects your immune system, like rheumatoid arthritis is one, and particularly if you're being treated with different things. Uh, so that does put you at increased risk for having problems should you get COVID. And there's a lot more complications and unfortunately a lot more death. Uh, death rates are higher in those groups. Um, and we know that the younger you are, the less symptoms that you have with COVID. In fact, some people can have COVID and not have any symptoms, particularly children um, and young adults. So uh, in the context of your question, you know, I, I would be as careful as you can. Now, if, if individuals, if you really want, if families really want to reach out to one another, and I know it's important, you know, those babies that you got to hold them and you want to do that, uh, if you want to do it as safely as possible, if, if there's a certain time period like holidays when people are coming home, if you can limit those numbers as much as possible, and if whoever is coming to visit you or you visiting them, if they can sort of before that visit, if they can make sure that they're not going out and going to different places, 
this this you know sort of super spreader events are big parties where you have a number of people who are interacting with one another without a mask on. Um, I can tell you as a pediatrician and an internist, when I see, see babies in clinic, I was interested to, to see how they would react to me with the mask on. And I have found that they react to you just as much. They give you those sweet little baby smiles and chuckles and cooing uh, in the same kind of way. So if you can wear a mask, that, that could protect you and your husband uh, while you're interacting with them uh, and, and holding them. And certainly you want to have good hand washing before and afterwards, but just because a, a, particularly a younger person, if they don't have any symptoms, that doesn't mean that they don't necessarily have COVID. Now they're, they're probably not going to spread it as much with that symptoms, particularly a cough, but I would have problems if you want to interact with your family and, I, I do, I, I, you know, I, I'm fully aware of this impacts uh, particularly our older population that we, we're starting to see negative outcomes with social isolation. So we want to find ways that we can still connect with one another. So I wouldn't say totally not do that. I hear it in your voice, at Barbara, that you want to do that. But I think taking those precautions of maybe them isolating before that visit, and then if you can during the visit, if they can have a mask on, that, that would be what I would do. I've, I've visited my parents uh, and tried to be careful about that, um, you know, just with, with the contacts that I've had and try to limit it. I hadn't had a whole lot of interaction with them, but those times before that, I've tried as much as possible the two weeks before that to not be around big gatherings and those kinds of things. Okay. All right, Barbara, you. I hope that... Uh, go ahead. Thank you very much. That was... Uh, it's real important to hear that. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Y'all stay safe. And uh, thank you for, for listening. And thank you for calling this morning. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions or taking your comments about any kind of health issue that you might have. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 Let's go to uh, Frank, who I believe is in Greene County. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, yeah, Thanks Dr. for calling. I- Good. Oh, well, thank you. I just happened to listen on the radio and... Uh, uh, you're a doctor, and I thought, oh, let me just ask him about my shoulder and see what he has to say. Sure, sure. Okay, well, I drive a truck, and uh, for the last two weeks, maybe three, my uh, my shoulder and arm, let me say that, I tried to do some exercise yesterday, uh, twirling my arm around in a, like a 360-degree 
And, uh, gosh, it just gives me so much pain. And I think, you know, I drive a lot with the left hand, and uh, it might hurt there. or might be the cause of it. And then sometimes when I sleep on my left side, it hurts there. And I think, what? And it's not going away. And I take and, uh, I take just spare aspirin for it, I guess you might say. I might have taken Advil, but... Uh, but it's not it's not going away, and I'm thinking, I wonder what the what is, what's causing it. I can't under can't figure that part out. Sure, yeah, Frank. The the shoulder joint is a incredible joint. It gives us a lot of range of motion. You mentioned sort of 360 degree. If you think about it, what a pitcher does with their arm, or you know any kind of activity that you do, it's a it's a floating joint. In other words, the upper bone of your arm, the humerus. Uh, is sort of floating in that uh, uh, the scapula with the scapula and muscles really sort of hold that joint in place in that joint space. Uh, you may have heard the term uh, the rotator cuff muscles, and those are muscles and tendons that help to hold that that uh, upper part of the humerus into that shoulder joint. And what ha- usually happens is a lot of times with repeated activity that stresses that joint space. And, and uh, sort of uh, particularly overhead activities, it, uh, it, can, uh, it can damage some of those structures in there. There's a lot of other things in there. And with, you know, just over the phone, it's a little bit hard without getting a good exam to, to notice. But it, it probably, if I was a, you know, betting on this, I would say it's a rotator cuff problem uh, uh, would be what most of these are. There, can, there is some other things, uh, particularly if you, if you sleep on it a certain way. Certainly a rotator cuff problem could do that. If you, if you can raise your arm up, though, particularly like if you if you're, uh, have the, the hand outstretched, uh, like you're reaching for a cup, and then like you're dumping that cup out upside down and then raise your arm. If it's difficult to do that, but you can raise it up, I would say that's, that's one of the most sensitive tests for a rotator cuff injury. Um, you can, there are some exercises that you can do to uh, rehabilitate that. If you do have access to, a, to go into a physician, that might be worthwhile, particularly somebody who, uh, who deals with this. A lot of times just those exercises alone can help. Certainly, I think if you, you know, are just in your mind, you're thinking about driving more with your right hand or both hands. I think that's a good that's probably a good thing to sort of offload that you're in a profession that has a lot of shoulder injuries just because you're using your arms more and you don't have to have an injury. That's the, the funny thing about it. A lot of people don't recall doing anything out of the ordinary. It just starts hurting like that. Uh, the, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to go to a physical therapist or if you do go, you might be able to just, you know, because of your work, you may be able to just to do some different things. One thing right off the bat, I would probably not do those 360-degree movements, at least not right now, because they don't do a whole lot to strengthen up the shoulder joint itself. There's some particular movements that you can do with your arm lower down that can strengthen up those rotator cuff muscles. If that doesn't work, you may need to see somebody that can possibly do an injection in the shoulder. That's helpful for both a diagnosis and for treatment, and a lot of times that can help you uh, depending on what is causing it, um, help you get over that initial period so that you can do those exercises to strengthen it up. I've had a shoulder problem. You described some of the same symptoms I had. 
with my left shoulder years ago with a rotator cuff injury. A rotator cuff tear, you want you're not going to be able to raise it up above your above your head like that. Um, but uh, with this long, you know, two to three weeks, if you can see somebody that can point you in the right direction for shoulder, rotator cuff exercises, and uh, you know, if you go online, if you have access to that, you could probably find some exercises uh, from a, a, a either WebMD or uh, Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic. They have a lot of good exercises that you can do for uh, for rotator cuff. If it's not getting better with that, you definitely need to see somebody. Um, you know, the last thing you want is to have a rotator cuff tear because then it's a whole different ballpark about what you need to do and probably would take you out of work um, for a while. But that's what I would recommend. It sounds like, you know, again, that's probably the thing that's happened. Uh, one of those tendons has gotten inflamed, uh, and that's what's causing you the pain. It's very common to have that at night just because you're laying on the on the area on your side. All right. Uh, no uh, no painkillers? Should I do that or not? Yeah, you can take some of the things you mentioned. I probably would be a little bit careful with the aspirin because you can have problems with your stomach. A lot of people have, you know, with chronic aspirin use. Uh, Aleve or uh, ibuprofen should be okay on a short-term basis, but if you're taking it much more than two or three weeks, uh, again, that'd be a uh, you know a point where I'd probably go see somebody else. Tylenol okay. works okay for a lot of people, but uh, you know most people would say, well, ibuprofen works better for me, or Aleve works better for me than Tylenol. But those are the ones that I would probably try first. And uh, now uh, ice can help too. If you, you know, if it's at the end of a day after you've been using it, icing the area down, um, you know, I, I'll tell you, I've, I've used ice packs. I've used frozen peas in the, the freezer. Uh, that seems to be you know, in the bag. That seems to be just about the right size. And that can help a good bit, too, with a lot of the inflammation and cut down the pain. Okay. And, and what are you telling me? You think it'll heal itself then if I try these things? I mean, blood yeah, you can try. I would try it. And, you know, if you can do that for two to three more weeks, if it's still hurting at that point, I'd go see somebody about it. Okay. All right. Got it. Okay. All right. That sounds good. I'll try something like that. See what happens there. But, but, but you hit the nail on the head when you said that uh, a baseball uh, pitcher might have, you know, a shoulder pain. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly, you know, not that I play baseball, but, uh, you know, right, I put a lot right. of, uh, I guess, stress, you might say, on it. And, uh, you know, it might, from that, it might just cause it to do something. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It's an overuse injury over time. Well, Frank, you stay safe out there. Thank you for calling this morning. Hey, Dr. Jimmy, we have got yeah. uh, Janet in Starkville next. Let's take her before the break, and then after the break, we'll go to Jerry and uh, Gail. So let's uh, get uh, Janet in Starkville here first. All right, Janet, good morning. Thank you for calling. Morning. Hey, all right. Listen, I have a question. I've been scheduled for a vein ablation. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. And Right. Um, is that like a cryoablation? Are they using an injection, or is it something different? where they use the injection and then they use the laser, I guess, to dissolve the pain. And my question is, um, first of all, I was scheduled for two of them, and beyond my control, they were both canceled. And I'm kind of wondering, what 
do they see in an ultrasound that would want them to do it? And other is um, what are the cautions or side effects from having it done? Like, uh, is there any real danger into having it done? Sure. So, uh, so what you're talking about is, is usually varicose veins. So these are surface veins most of the time on your lower extremities. Uh, so on your, you know, lower part of your legs or even up on the upper part of the legs for some people, as we get older, our veins, uh, they have valves in them. So veins don't have their own, uh, their low pressure system. So to get that blood back to the heart, to get pumped through your, through your lungs and the rest of your body, they have to have one way valves and those valves over time, uh, particularly if you're in, you know, uh, in your in professions where you sit or they they pull a lot, where you're not moving around as much, uh, you tend to get um, they tend to wear out. And in families, sometimes certain uh, you know genetic factors can play into that. So vein ablation, there's a there's the superficial veins that you see, but there's deep veins that are in between the muscles, and uh, there's a connecting system between all of those. So you can you can ablate those veins like you mentioned, so that you can inject things in there that cause them to sclerose down. They'll scar up, uh, and they you won't have that big ballooning of blood. Now that's that makes them not useful for getting blood back, so that you re, you sort of push all that blood back to the to the uh, deep veins. Um, uh, there's different methods. I mentioned a few. Uh, that's certainly what you described is one of the more common things where you inject and use a laser system to do that. Uh, pretty successful in uh, controlling the superficial veins. They look at an ultrasound to look at flow through there. Uh, and again, they can sort of pinpoint where it's going to work and where it's not going to work as well. So they, they are sort of map out those venous systems with the ultrasound. It helps you look underneath the skin at where that blood flow is going. And as far as complications, infection is probably the biggest one. So anytime you cause some damage to any kind of tissue through that, certainly scarring up of the tissue, and because it's close to the skin, even though you're not cutting through the skin into that area or introducing anything, there's still a chance of infection with something like that. So you want to be careful and uh, you know with with those areas that they do, and you know try not to bump them around other things. Pain is one, so usually you'll have some post-operative pain after they do the procedure. Um, but other than that, those are the biggest uh, those are the biggest complications that I'm aware of. It's always a good idea to ask your surgeon or whoever your physician is about any kind of procedure that they're going to do. Hey, tell me about the complications with this. Tell me the indications why this may or may not help me. What are the chances of that? And then what are the chances of any kind of complications, and what are they? I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Sun and Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls during the hour about any kind of health care issues that you might be having or somebody else near and dear to you. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 I'm going to go to uh, Jerry from Oakland, who's been patiently waiting. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. How are you this morning? Thank- Good. Thank you for calling. Um, I, I have a question. My mother, um, she's a heart patient, and she has had a triple bypass. So. Uh, uh, Jerry, I think we may have lost you there. Are you still there? Uh, can you hear me? Uh, just barely. We got you cutting in and out. Okay, go ahead. Let's see if we can hear you now. Um my mother had like severe edema in the in the, her lower legs from a knee down, and it's it's worse in the mornings when she wakes up. It just the swelling just immediately starts, and so the doctor said her protein levels were down, but her liver enzymes were up. So do you know what could be causing something like that to happen? Yeah, so there's different, uh, so swelling in the lower extremities, particularly with something like heart failure, is, uh, it's unfortunately common, and it can be caused by a lot of different things. So it sounds like your mom may have a couple of different things going on. One of the reasons for having swelling, particularly with, with heart problems, can be heart failure. There's two big types of heart failure. There's uh, heart failure where your heart is, is weakened to the point where it's not able to pump blood to the rest of your body. And then the other type is one, it doesn't relax, so blood sort of back backs up uh, in the system. Both of those can cause, uh, um, you know, edema or, or swelling in the lower extremities. Now, protein, there's a certain amount of proteins in our blood that sort of hold the water portion of the blood inside the blood vessels. And if your protein gets low enough, it leaks out into those lower extremities. Um, and, and that may be caused by a number of things. You can lose protein in your um, in your uh, urine, so your kidneys may be leaking uh, protein out of the blood into the urine from some damage that there might be there. So that needs to be looked at. You mentioned the liver; that the liver produces protein. It helps to produce proteins in our body uh, and circulates those to the rest of our body. And if it's not making enough protein then that can be an issue. And then there's another uh, reason if you don't absorb enough protein. So if there's, uh, if you're not eating enough protein in your diet or you're in a, you have an inability for the, uh, for the gut to absorb that into the body. And there's different tests that they're going to need to look at. They may even want to bring in some gastroenterologist or a kidney doctor, which is a nephrologist to try to tease that out. But at the minimum, those are the kind of things it sounds like they're already looking at some of those to determine, you know, if that if that uh, swelling is is uh, because of a number of those things. But those are the you know, I always think about the heart, the kidneys, the uh, the liver and the, the gut are, are some common reasons why you might have swelling. Now, medications can be another one, too, and particularly a blood pressure medication uh, class called the calcium channel blockers. These are things like amlodipine or Norvasc, 
or uh, procardia, uh, both of those can, can cause significant lower extremity swelling. So if she's had a change in those medications, that may be another thing to investigate to see if there might be an alternative to taking those. Uh, in the meantime, elevation of her extremities, that can be something that can help a little bit. And compression hose, not just like regular hose that you would wear, but medical compression hose uh, can help to sort of uh, redistribute that while they're trying to figure out what's going on. So those are the things that come to my mind uh, right off the bat. There's some other reasons, too, why you might have that. But that's that's the most common ones, I think, particularly with your mother's uh, medical conditions that they may be thinking about. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I've, I've, you covered a lot of information, which a lot they have discussed with us. Because um, she, she did have a liver biopsy, but it's, it's still we still don't have results on that after two weeks. But, um, but thank oh, wow. you for your yeah. time. I, I really did appreciate it. Sure, and that, you know they probably what's probably happening with that liver biopsy too. Sometimes they'll send it off for some special studies. I keep calling them about that. Um, you know, once or twice a week just to say, hey, have you heard anything from the liver biopsy? Two weeks is getting to the point where they should have something back. I know we had, right. you know, a holiday. That may have slowed some things down, too. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right, Jerry. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Gail in Gulfport. Good morning, Gail. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for calling. Okay, What's I your... had incidental finding of a thyroid nodule which was scanned and the results are a TR4. Lab results are all within normal range and we're talking biopsy now. What would you say are the, uh, the scope that it could be uh, not benign? Uh, yeah, so so let's talk about thyroid nodules. So, and you said an incidental finding. So I'm guessing they were looking at something else and found that, right? Correct. Yeah, they would do okay. a Yeah. So your thyroid is a gland that controls. Normally, its job is to control your metabolism. So it really affects all the body's function. Uh, it's it's uh, stimulated. It's told what to do by a gland in, the, in your brain called the pituitary gland. And then it sends signals to the thyroid, which is in the, the anterior, the front part of your neck on each side of your vocal cords. It's sort of an H-shaped gland. And sometimes you can feel that on exam. You have to, you know, really be uh, do a lot of those to sort of feel what's normal and abnormal. Every once in a while, they'll pick up uh, a, a nodule there. And there can be different things that cause that nodule. Number one, you want to make sure the thyroid is functioning adequately. You said that your test looked okay with that. So there's some blood tests that you can get. And then beyond that, uh, they'll do some imaging of the thyroid. Usually they'll start off with something like ultrasound that can uh, tell you what that nodule looks like. If it's a solid nodule, if it's a cystic nodule, that just means it has some fluid in it, uh, how big it is, those kinds of things, and where it is in the thyroid, or if you have multiple ones. At that point, they may want to do that. It sounds like you may have had this where they do a functioning of that with like a it's a scan uh, that looks at uh, the uptake of uh, of iodine into that. So they'll they'll look at the functioning of it. How well is that nodule itself producing thyroid 
hormone or is it just sitting there not doing anything? And a cold nodule, in other words, in, 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 in other words, one that's not doing that, that may be a little bit of a red flag to do a biopsy of it. Most of the time, these are benign, but you can't really tell if, you know, in your case, with everything being normal at this point, it certainly is encouraging. But, um, you know, it's it, you still don't know till you actually get the tissue and look at it. So there is a small chance that these nodules are cancerous. Um, they can be, uh, you know, different types of, of, uh, of cancerous uh, nodules. Sometimes just taking that nodule out is all that you need to do. Sometimes they'll ablate the whole gland. In other words, they'll give you uh, radioactive iodine that goes just to the thyroid and it uh, destroys that thyroid tissue. And then basically you just take thyroid hormone uh, for the rest of your life. So all those things are possible. But, um, yeah, it's it's sort of hard to say at this point if, you know, based on what you said, what the chances are of um, of not, you know, of, of having this be, be cancerous. But that's the reason why they're suggesting they do the biopsy. I will say the biopsy is fairly easy to get. I know it sounds crazy, you know, like, okay, they're going to stick something in my neck to get this out. Uh, but it's very, very small. They numb up the area. They may have already talked to you about, you know, sort of what they do. It's an outpatient patient procedure. It doesn't really take a lot, uh, very long. And they, they'll use the ultrasound to, to uh, sort of guide where they go on that, to that nodule. It is nice that it's in the anterior part of the neck because it's pretty easy to get to. So being a TI4 on the uh, scan, that's what's the result. Does that increase or decrease my um, outlook? Um, it doesn't really. So it doesn't really tell you that it's. It's not enough information to tell you that your your overall outlook is better. I guess is what I'm saying. So, um, you know that the scan will tell you some things, whether or not it's a functioning nodule. And most people would lead not to biopsy those if it just looks like it's doing its regular job. But if it's not, then they may want to biopsy that uh, to get more information. Um, but it's still, it's not enough information to say, okay, I think if we don't biopsy this, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be okay. Understand. But I will say uh, this, I will say this, Gail, it's, it sounds like they have done exactly the stepwise process that they need to, to get up to this point to know what's the next step. Okay, just double checking. A little consultation on the side is bad. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Gail. I, I agree with that. Well, good luck to you, and uh, thanks for calling today, and thanks for listening to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you, 
and let you know how the law affects you. Find in legal terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website at legalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Let's go to, uh, I believe, Louise in Mobile. Good morning, Louise. Thank you for waiting so long. Good morning. Is this Dr. Stewart? Yes, ma'am, it is. Okay. Well, I have a question about masks. Because I'm 84 years old, I I had um, stage four colon cancer, but I beat it. I'm back to... Normal, I think my immune system is better than ever. I do my running and jogging and, and power walking, uh, 5K a day. I'm in excellent shape. But I know that masks and distancing and uh, hand washing are the only tools I have personally, so I use them diligently. But here are all these impressions I get from an information highway they they don't protect others. If I had it, of course I don't have it. They don't pre- protect me. Even a nurse told me, you know, she explained to me how those little COVID cooties, how tiny they are, smaller than <laughs> a perfume spray, and that they get through everything. She's just wearing it because she has to. And I hear all those things. What's your opinion? So, so I, I would say that what you hear out there, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, which means it hasn't been studied. And unfortunately, even among the medical community, there's a lot of information that has not been backed up by good research. So uh, let me talk about the research and then we'll go into what actually happens. And we've got a lot of data from when. All right. This is Dr. Jimmy with you. Can you hear me OK there, Kevin? Yeah, you're back with us, and I think you still have Louise on the air with you. Okay, good. So, uh, so Louise, um, this is what we were uh, so talking about. Hold on just a second. Let me increase my – get my um, – okay, there we go. Uh, so, so we were talking about, um, you know, mask usage. So basically masks have been looked at, uh, at uh, transmitting um, uh, these viral poc- – now, it's not the virus itself – floating around it's floating around in something so it's not uh it's floating around in small to mid-sized particles of our saliva and the things that we cough and breathe in and out so uh you have to 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 understand that part now when we talk about mask usage there's different types of masks certainly the n95 mask and uh, and above that means that they filter out 95 percent of those particle sizes that we talked about uh, that you can inhale. Certainly a face shield is a physical barrier, uh, even more than that. So, uh, you know, that's been studied and it can decrease if you're wearing a mask and somebody else is wearing a mask, even if it's not an N95, that can decrease your chance dramatically of getting it. You add that social distancing part, it increases it, but it's because you're not, uh, you're not, uh, you know, going to spread that. So the data is there, and I'll tell you this: of our people, if if masks didn't work, uh, we would see a whole lot of transmission from patients to healthcare workers, and particularly in the hospital and hospital rooms and ICU rooms. And guess what? We don't see that. So 
they do work. Uh, I would encourage you, Louise, to keep doing what you're doing. You said everything right to, to be able to protect yourself. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people out there that are spreading misinformation. But as far as the data is concerned, that's that's spot on. Uh, we're going to uh, thank you for calling, Louise. We're going to go to David and try to squeeze you in, David, from Union, Mississippi. Thanks for calling. Uh yeah, doctor, my, my grandson is small, and it's beginning to bother him. Uh, he's smaller than his cohort, and, he, of course, and that hadn't been a big problem until he started getting smaller than his younger cousin. And I was just wondering what the options were. What, is there something we could pursue? I've heard there's, like, injections of hormones or something, and just uh, just just trying to get some information. Yeah. David, how old is he? He's uh, six. Okay, good. All right, so, so uh, you know, short stature uh, can be caused by a number of things. Now, sometimes it's, you know, if particularly those families where, you know, mom might be five foot two and dad might be five foot eight. You know, there's certain genetic factors that help determine that. And then there's different times when we normally see those growth spurts uh, in pre-adolescence, uh, really even before that, and then into adolescence, but you have sort of late bloomers is what they're called, you know, that, that are just going to reach their maturation later. One of the easiest things to do is an x-ray that looks at the bone age, if it matches up or if it's delayed with the actual age. And that can really give you a, a sense of, if, is this sort of a normal delayed growth that you can expect that this person is going to reach their, their target height and then follow that over time. It's something that their physician should be tracking anyway, but the bone age would be just like getting a regular x-ray that uh, would be something that they could, uh, you know, that they could determine that. And then usually they will, um, usually they will um, refer them to an endocrinologist, a pediatric endocrinologist that can talk about the different options that you have. The injections that you mentioned are growth hormones. So it's a natural hormone that we make, that, that we normally make. And uh, in certain cases, uh, it is indicated for so that the individual would have sort of a normal growth range. We don't give it so that people could, you know, play in the NBA uh, so that they could become six foot eight uh, when really they should only be five foot eight. Uh, but again, I, you know, certainly we want to, if there's some opportunities to do that, there may be some indications. But the first thing would be to get that bone age x-ray that their pediatrician could get uh, or their family physician could get to sort of determine that. And then based on those uh, uh, results, they could uh, move on if they needed to, to a pediatric endocrinologist. Well, great. That's, uh, that's, that's what we'll do then. We'll just get, the, but any GP or, or, or his, uh, his regular doctor can, can, do that or send this to the place to have it done, the, the bone age yeah. x-ray? Yeah, it, doesn't, it okay. doesn't have to be real fancy. I mean, their, their regular physician can do that. If they're uncomfortable with that, they could go, you know, just sort of skip that and go to a pediatric endocrinologist, and then they could do the x-ray. So either way, we'd get the same results. All right, thank you, David, and thank you, everybody, for calling today. That's all the time that we have for this week. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You can always send us an email. Send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio.
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.